I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Saturday, Harry Reid's close family, friends, and former staff will gather in Las Vegas to celebrate his life. Next week, the former Senate Majority Leader will lie in state in the Capitol Rotunda. Reed was born in 1939 in the tiny desert mining town of Searchlight, Nevada. He was raised in the kind of poverty that only survives in pockets of the U.S. today. As chair of the Nevada Gaming Commission, he transformed Las Vegas from a mob-run town to a corporate and labor-run city, earning himself a depiction in Martin Scorsese's 1995 film Casino. He served 30 years in the Senate, leading the Democratic caucus from 2005 until his retirement after the 2016 election. Today, we're joined by three of his close aides. Ari Ravenhoff joined Team Reed in 2005 and was a guest on our recent episode about the history of the Office of the Parliamentarian, which was surprisingly one of the most popular shows we've done. He later became deputy campaign manager for Bernie Sanders in 2020, and he also worked as the researcher for Reed's memoir, The Good Fight, one of the few political memoirs I've read that was actually a page turner. Now, Bernie's 2020 campaign manager was Faz Shakir who joined Reed's office in 2013. Kristen Orthman joined him in 2010 and, like Faz, stayed through his retirement in 2017. She subsequently became a senior aide to Elizabeth Warren and is now communications director at the DNC. So I wanted to start with a quick Reed story and see if it jogged any recollections on him. And it's it's something that I, I told in my book, and I mentioned the book, not, not to plug it, but because it's relevant. So by Ryan's book. Yeah, by by my book. So and so it was a story about how Harry Reid during the lame duck of 2010 uh, told the White House that he was going to and this was his his quote roll the dice on repealing don't ask don't tell. That they had been trying it for the last uh, 2 years they've been trying it for longer than that hadn't been able to get it. O- Obama said, "Ugh, I don't know, man." said, look, I really want to get my new START treaty passed. Like that, Obama's number one priority in the lame duck was getting his new START treaty. This is a nuclear nonproliferation agreement that he had struck with with Russia. And he was deeply worried under this theory that losses beget other losses, that if you put don't ask, don't tell repeal on the floor and it goes down, then it's it's like a virus. It's contagious and, and it kills everything else because he also wanted to pass DACA which was struggling even harder than don't ask, don't tell, repeal. And Reed told him, look, I understand your concerns, Mr. President, but I'm going to roll the dice and hung up, which is what he does. That wasn't personal. When, he, when the conversation is over, he hangs up the phone. He never told this story before. Uh, and so uh, I, I told it in my book. And before the book came out, I reached out to Obama's office for comment on that. Person goes to Obama. Obama picks up the phone and calls Harry Reid. And says, come on, man. I really wanted don't ask, don't tell repeal. Because now, you know, Obama is very much associated with marriage equality. And the repeal of don't ask, don't tell paved the way for marriage equality. 
Because if you go to the Supreme Court and the military is still not allowing people to serve openly, then it's very hard for the Supreme Court to legalize marriage equality. And Reed says, okay, Mr. President, I'll, I'll call him back and clarify. He calls back, tells me the exact same thing. That Obama, I want to be very clear, the president always supported repeal of don't ask, don't tell, but his main concern was the New START treaty. He didn't want to get in the way. But he, he very much, in principle, you know, supported repeal of don't ask, don't tell. And so I went back to Obama's spokesman. I said, look, this is what he said. She sighed. I said, I can call again if you want, but I've been through this before because once uh, Chuck Schumer's office had Reed call me, and Reed did the exact same thing that time. Agreed to call, but then said the opposite of what he had been expecting. Yeah, but he only agreed to call. To call. Right, he, he agreed to call. So does any of that sound like in character, out of character? I mean, how many layers of that are in character? So I mean, let's let's pull out all the strains. On a legislative strategy, I mean, I'm sure it was nice of Harry Reid to call President Obama and let him know what he was thinking. He had made a decision. No one's going to walk him off that. Once he made a decision that he was going to go push ahead with don't ask, don't tell, that was a courtesy call. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that was, uh, you know, him doing his politics. But he had made a judgment and a determination. When Harry Reid made a judgment determination based on the politics and policy merits of something, it was going to happen. And I think, listen, like, there's a reason why he understood where President Obama was at that time and where he understood him to be now, which is that, hey, yeah, he's supportive of it. But is he going to fight for this? Well, I'm going to fight for this. And I know the politics enough. I assume Harry would say that if I push for this, I think I can get the cards to line up in our favor. Right. But it's going to take some kind of a fight, some kind of a friction. And if I do it, Reed being the person who he is, seeing around the corner, seeing the potential endgame, that, you know, cards are going to fall into place. Well, there's the Amarillo Slim quote that I think applies to Harry Reid and legislative strategy, which is, I never make a bet I haven't already won. Mm-hmm. And he knew, like, Reid knew the Senate, and, and there's no senator today that has the same knowledge of the Senate procedure than Harry Reid, who spent, you know, he spent so much time on the floor in the early part of his career, and even as leader in a way that Schumer and McConnell just don't, in, in the same way that he... He understood those dynamics at a very deep level. And so I, I'm sure it was a risk, but it was very calculated. And he, you know, I think it showed there are so many stories from the, especially the 09 10 period, where Reed, uh, where Reed was in front of the White House in terms of the Senate. And to me, I think the thing that this, goes to is I think some of the biggest mistakes the White House made, the Obama White House made when Reed was leader was when they cut Reed out of the loop or tried to go around him and like went to Biden to mm-hmm. negotiate around Reed. Right, Kristen, you were a junior staffer then, very, very junior, junior staffer then. What do you remember from that? Well, period? I remember it was the one of the most productive lame ducks ever. And this is the one where the Tea Party's coming in, right. so you've got right. to get it. Sh- it shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been. Right. And we had lost, what, seven seats in the Senate, but Reed, because he had won his reelect when many thought he would not, I think was emboldened and, and probably rightfully so. I think, too, you mentioned the DREAM Act vote, which I believe failed. Mm-hmm. Um, it did. Not Same believe, day. I know, failed um, yeah. then. But I think that set up DACA. 
it set up the executive action. I, I think he understood sometimes you can take votes and you might lose a vote, but how does that move the ball forward on legislation or on policy or on politics? Uh, but yeah, I, I had actually been on the campaign. So I came back from Vegas for the lame duck and then ended up ended up staying in his office after that. Um, it was a little chaotic and I was like a press assistant. So let's not pretend right. I was like in the room, Ryan. But that, that campaign was was wild because this is the Tea Party wave. You know, everybody's getting wiped out. Like you said, seven Democrats lose. Nevada's by no means like a deep blue state at this point. He has a target on his back. He's majority leader. They, you know, he's got what the Koch's gunning for him with everything they have, which is endless. And he, he manages to survive. And one of the ways he did it was by screwing over the Republicans in the primary, right? <laughs> like basically picking his opponent, doing what Clinton thought was clever when she was hoping that Trump would be the nominee so she could kind of cruise to general election victory. But Reid actually pulled it off. Can you talk a little bit about that that primary? Yeah, so I was in Reid's office and ended up moving out to Las Vegas. I'd never been to Nevada and it was spring of 2010. Every poll had him down. I, I was so naive that I didn't actually realize that I was potentially going out to a losing campaign. Like, I just wanted the chance. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I'll do this. I've never been to Vegas. It must be fun to live there. And the weekend I got out there, which was before the Republican primary, a couple of the senior campaign staffers came in the room. I was on the research team then. I was media monitor was my title, which meant I watched and listened to everything that had to do with- A lot of John Ralston. A lot of John Ralston, a lot of Alan Stock, a lot of like Vegas conservative radio or national conservative radio. And the first weekend I'm there, senior leadership comes in and says, we have hundreds, thousands of tapes of Sharon Angle from every county event because we'd been tracking her, a tracker, a tracker with a video camera would go mm -hmm. to every event. None of them are transcribed. She might win in three weeks. Everyone <laughs> from campaign manager to intern is spending the next three weekends 24-7 transcribing Sharon Angle. And like, we just, I mean, had a treasure trove. So we knew when she won that day in the primary, everything that she had said up until that point but what did you guys do to get, to make sure that she won? I, I have to like be careful because I was in no way mm -hmm. part of like a strategy. I was just monitoring like right. the news. But it, I think it was, you try everything you mm -hmm. can and maybe you maybe you win. And there was the chickens for checkups moments that Team Reed just blew and up. You, was that during the primary or the general? That was in the primary. That, that was, was the, in the primary. That was not Sharon Engel. That was her opponent. Oh, that's yes. right. That's right. So Sue Loudon, who was... Expected to be expected Reed. to be Reed. They took her out in the primary because they they just made her keep messing up. Like she made a mistake. I think a lot of times it's like you take advantage of a mistake and you and if they're a bad candidate, they continue to make mistakes and then they just snowball. Her gaff was saying something like, "People, we don't need a we don't need Obamacare because people can just pay for their 
healthcare barter with chickens. For healthcare barter with for chickens. healthcare. Yeah. Let's change the system and talk about what the possibilities are. I'm telling you that this works. You know, before we all started having healthcare in the olden days, our grandparents, they would bring a chicken to the doctor. They would say, I'll paint your house. They would do, I mean, that's the old days of what people would do to get healthcare with their doctors. Doctors are very sympathetic people. I, I'm not backing I, down from that system. I, and that's so she sounded crazy enough. You're like, well, if we're going to have a crazy person, let's have the real deal. Have the yeah, real, the and, real crazy and I think person that, like, angle. Yeah, that's right. And in, in, in that was at a time when the Republican, I mean, it's still now, but the Republican primary electorate knew that Sue Loudon wasn't one of them. Whether she had those gaps or not, I actually think Sharon Engel would have probably still won that hmm. primary. It just made it, you know, you're fighting on the margins in these instances. So, And so then once you're in the general, what was the... Yeah, so in the general, there was a period of time before Sharon Engel's Ralston, what it was called, them, the DC handlers came in, Senator McConnell's people, like NRSC operatives, to basically tell her to stop doing interviews, to stop doing whatever. So there was like a, a month of time before that happened, and she was still she was going on like call in radio stations, taking like live callers. So my job was to find out where what she was doing, and then we would flood the lines and we would ask her whatever questions we would want. And so we got a bunch of questions out there. And the one that I, I am most proud of because I, it played a fairly significant role in the campaign was she was on a Las Vegas radio station. Senator Reed was known for what we called Saving City Center, which was a MGM property that was being shuttered during the I almost said during the pandemic, during the <laughs> recession. And he basically like threatened the banks, right? Yes, yeah. he did. Um, I mean, that's good reported. old school. He reported yeah. he did. Yeah. Um, and so we were trying to get her on record, would she have saved City Center? Um, thinking that like that was, it was like such a real project. People saw the cranes on the strip. They saw like the gates, like they knew that that was a huge, and that was one of the biggest accomplishments that we were running on. And so she was on the show I went and called in my, I was told, like, ask her the city center question. So I'm around back. So I wouldn't be in the office when I was calling. And I'm, I'm the person that asked her the city center question. And I actually had another question. I was hoping I could ask Ms. Engel as okay, well. Okay, do it. Uh, you know, Harry Reid brags all the time about the, the, the job he saved in city center. Would, would you have made that same call? Would you have saved city center? Uh, no, I would not. You know, the reason is because he may have saved jobs in city center, but he actually cost jobs in other parts of the city. And I come running in and I, I will never forget, like, because they were on a delay and they're like, did you ask her? Did you? I'm like, yes. And she said no. Like, she just straight up said no. Like, I asked a yes or I no question and she yeah. answered Let Detroit no. go bankrupt. It foreshadowed, and, yeah, the 2012 um, Republican. Were you Kristen from Las Vegas or did so you use I, a pseudonym? I used, I used, I used. Long time listener, first time call. <laughs> I, the, the, I used, uh, I think I said Lara, but because, I think this is the one, because like I pronounce words weird because I'm from Boston. He thought I said Walla. That, I think that's like a good, how does that tie into like read broader around like the kind of ethos he puts in his team to you like leave nothing on the table. He knew he was like, you know, use whatever up against the ropes, like all of that. And he was really determined. Everyone just worked so hard for him because you wanted, you knew that he was working hard and also look like politics. Like, yeah, 
have my team call in and see if we can get her. Right. I, I feel yeah. like people might like bristle at that, but like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, a ca- it's a campaign. And the mentality is 50 plus one, right? Whatever it takes to win. Uh, and like, obviously within certain bounds, but like you're-, you're just, Although he stretches the bounds. Yeah. Like to, you, you were there for the Mitt Romney doesn't pay any taxes. As I was too. Right? I think you were more there than yeah. even I was. Yes. <laughs> I don't remember if you were in the room or not, but yes, yeah, Sam Stein and I were interviewing him, and and he just in in, in an interview he said, I, "I Mitt Romney hasn't paid any taxes in ten years." And who who, who told you that? He's like, "Well, I, I can't reveal my source." He he apparently said it already on the Senate floor, and nobody had noticed it. The words out that he hasn't paid any taxes for ten years. Let him prove that he has paid taxes because he hasn't. We already know from one partial tax return that he gave us. He has money hidden in Bermuda, the Cayman Islands, and a Swiss bank account. To this day, we can talk about the, you know, the backup for it and the sourcing and all that. But I, I think one of the things that I still harbor, maybe I'm I'm in the minority on it, is that like I think that read source and how he knew that Romney had we never really got the full, you know, 10 years of Mitt Romney's tax return to pay, to see what the effective tax rate is. Like whether he paid a single digit Tax rate, I think, probably was probably correct, but I don't know that we'll ever find out. The rumors were that it, it was through the like Mormon tax accounting grapevine and somehow had come from like John Huntsman Sr. That's the rumor out there. It's a rumor. And right. And so people have said well, that was below the belt because Romney did pay some taxes. That's right. And then it's a question of, well, what do you mean by no? Right. What do you mean by no taxes? Exactly. Like, obviously, he paid sales taxes. Yes, paid, but it read who he was some, knew how the quote and how it would be captured and the conversation that it would lead to, and he was not wrong about that. He also seemed to be gambling that Romney would not release his taxes because, in other words, he couldn't be proven wrong. He he could be proven wrong by yeah, but, Romney by releasing his taxes, but he seemed to know that. But he, here's the right. thing: he knew, regardless of what he knew, he knew Romney didn't want to release his taxes. Right. So either. Romney doesn't release his taxes and Reed's statement holds, or Romney does release his taxes and he's doing something he doesn't want to do. Right. And, this, and think about this strategic play just for a minute. I mean, you have like this is very much how Harry Reid would, I think, look at this race and say, okay, here's Obama going up against Mitt Romney. What are Mitt Romney's weaknesses? Well, he's uh, somebody who's understood to be a financier captured by corporate interests. How do we enliven that? How do we make that something that captures the public imagination and not actually not not incorrectly understood that having a taxes conversation with Mitt Romney only plays out in one direction. It plays out to the benefit of Barack Obama, who obviously talked about Bain and a bunch of other things related to Mitt Romney's kind of uh, elite dumb. And don't underestimate also how much Harry Reid would have disliked the elitism and the born with a silver spoon of Mitt Romney. Right. You know, both you, Ari, and Faz both went on to work for Bernie Sanders afterwards, who's Washington's most famous class warrior. Second, probably, to Kristen's class warrior boss, Elizabeth Warren. But I think that of the three of them, maybe Harry Reid might actually hate rich people the most. I like, think but he's hate, the hate most them in pure... like particularly hates them. Yeah. Uh, look, I think he ends up in a different place because I think... Both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are more grassroots politicians. So th- there's a kind of tactical difference. But on a pure like class analysis point, Reed had a real personal class analysis. And I think the other thing to add to that too, Ari, is that while Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have run for president, and we don't want to minimize the important right. stage that that is, you're Harry Reid, you're Senate Majority Leader, you're in the room watching, in many ways, the most 
kind of high-level conversations about policy discourse in this country. There really isn't a major policy discourse that you aren't a fundamental part of. And you are watching it literally every single day about how people who have money, power, and influence are the ones who get meetings, the ones who have inputs, the ones who are trying to drive the show. And I think, you know, while he understood it and saw it and, and obviously worked it to some degree for his own benefits, he harbored and always retained an anger about who was at that table and who wasn't at mm-hmm. that table. I think maintained it in his DNA, like who's not here, who's not being represented. And I think I've said it a number of times about him that, you know, Crystal, remember all these senior team conversations we'd have with him. One of the first things he'd always ask is like, what's the right thing to do here? And he just really wanted to know what is the right thing to do. Now let's work through the politics and like who wants this and who wants that and the caucus and all this stuff. But that question is, you know, so rarely asked and especially at his kind of level. Kristen, what's your assessment of whose hate is pure? To paraphrase Alexander Yeah, I I mean, I don't, I thought your, someone at this table, but I think it was you, Ryan, had a thread about um, where people went to college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And and to me, I think. And for uh, people who missed that, and Susan McHugh had told me this after, after one of the interviews, he asked me and Sam where we went to college and we told him and afterwards uh she said he asked people that because you know he wants to find out who who like went to state schools who went to state schools he's never heard of you know who who came from play, who who fought to get where they are yep and so he appreciates them more than if you say oh, well i went to yale he's like okay well that's not very interesting to me yeah of course you're in my senate majority leader office because you went to yale right i and i feel like so i mean i don't know who hates more i'm gonna tap myself out of that answer. I thought what you said spoke a lot to him and what I what I remember about him, which is he actually sort of rejected a lot of like Washington norms that I think are prevalent in this town. Like you going to the White House Correspondence Center going to or going to Ivy League schools. I, I think he it's almost like he felt maybe I fought my way a lot harder to be here than maybe others. Mm-hmm. And is that like class sort of conflict? Like, yes, like, right. But mm-hmm. I, that's kind of how I, I always heard it and thought of it. And, and I mean, remember, like, Nevada didn't have a law school. He had to come to GW to to go to law school at the, when he was going to law school at the time. Like um, at night while he was a Capitol Police exactly. officer. And right? he, I'm sure he was resentful of everybody at GW Law School who didn't have to work right. nights. I mean, at that point, I think they had two kids. I mean, he infamously walked into the dean's office and asked for a scholarship, more money. Was like, I got two kids or, or one well, kid his car, away. his car broke down. Yeah. And he went to the dean's office and said, can I, can, like, what do I do? And the dean was like, I think you should drop out, basically. And by the way, he like held a grudge against GW yes, for 50 years. years. Until he went back for as the- majority leader to give the commencement speech. And by the way, he lived in D.C., his apartment, literally oh, like three blocks from the GW Law Campus. He lived in the Ritz, too, which, yeah. what can we read into that? That's He liked the apartment. He liked the wild. location. Like, it, was, it wasn't pretentiousness. It was, because he wouldn't go it to- It feels a, like somebody comfortable in their class position, like comfortable in their working class roots, that they're right. not worried that they're going to get blasted as too hoity-toity for living literally in the Ritz. Interesting. I never thought of it that way. 
It, right, the confidence of, of your own convictions, what you fight for, who you are, and then saying, I'm also, you know, the, the working class ethic is, yeah, who would like a good life? Be like a politician who feels comfortable enough in their own skin to be able to walk into a bar and order whatever they want from the bar rather than what Obama was saying. Let me get a, don't, say. don't give me one of those fancy yingalings. Give me, give me what the locals drink. Like it's a yingling and that is what we drink. And yeah, it's it's not I mean, I think Adam Jellison wrote about New York Times, which I think is absolutely right. And I think we'd all agree is that one of his superhuman abilities and traits is that didn't, didn't give a shit. Um, you know, the, he had a very strong con- confidence in self, confidence in strategic direction. I think it's one of the reasons he built loyalty around staff. I mean, I associated with the kind of the traditional qualities of a father figure, which is when you think of those, it's a, somebody who has confidence of direction caring about a whole family, thinking about opportunities for everybody within that family, looking out for the whole. I mean, it, it, there was a, a projection a, and I think the reality of, of confidence that the decisions that are going to be made here are ones everyone can buy into. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And so are, are you helped with the research and some of the writing, maybe? of The research. Of, Mark Warren did the Mark Warren did the writing or helped with the writing. You can... I'm no, Mark Warren did the writing there. Let's the, the good fight. It's some of it seems transcribed from Reed because some of it sounds like Reed talking. Yeah, there were lots. I had about this is fifteen memoir, hours of tapes, about. and then more. Mark had a bunch of tapes. But so yeah, yeah so where so, does he? So talk a little bit about where he comes from. So in 06, there was this idea floated to do by Susan to, that he should write his autobiography. I went out to Vegas and spent a few days with the senator and Landra. And he told his life story. Then I took those tapes and went around and made sure it was true. Because mm-hmm. some of the stuff was like so outlandish that you were like, this can't be true. And But invariably what happened is you'd talk to people and the story would be like, he would be toning it down and the story would be like far crazier. And like you would hear things like this guy, Gary Bates, who's passed since who was Reed's sparring partner in high school, like told this one story about Reed when when Lefty Rosenthal wanted to kill Reed and he would stand in the middle. And Gary Bates was this professional prize fighter, giant guy who was mob associated at the time. And then, and then kind of got out of that and like was like, I love Harry Reed. He's like everything to me. He'd lo- he loved Reed. He talked about, how Reed wanted to run a marathon and, but couldn't because of security at the time. 
So he the was mob living, wanted to kill him. Yeah. He was, so Reed was living in a cul-de-sac in Las Vegas or Henderson. And Gary Bates stood in the middle of the cul-de-sac with a shotgun as Harry Reed ran a marathon around the cul-de-sac with a holster with a six-shooter in it for hours, just sat running around, like, which goes to like, his- Like 26 miles around the- Yes. <laughs> Reed was a runner. And he like That's did insane. like desert super marathon. Like he did some crazy stuff like desert super marathons. But where he comes from, I, I think that's that's first off, the level of abject poverty he grew up in is something that is underappreciated by a lot of people. I think even today when you see, I think all of us have been to Searchlight. Yeah. Like when you go to Searchlight, you're like, even now you're like, is holy. It, is it a town? You're it like- It doesn't even qualify as a town. Yeah, there, there were like- Five, the last time I was there, I think there were five non-trailer structures in the city. One was Harry Reid's house that he, not his childhood house, his house now, his childhood house was made of railroad ties. There was the Harry Reid Elementary School. There was the library that contained the Harry Reid Museum. There was Junior Cree's house who owned the trailer park. And there was a Searchlight Nugget Diner and Casino, which, yes, is literally- This was a kind of upbringing that in the 1840 presidential campaign would have been considered hard scrabble. Yeah, it's, I mean- no bat, no indoor plumbing, two-room schoolhouse, and a childhood that was that was fairly difficult. Like you hear, there's a story of his brother Larry broke his leg once, and they're in a little shack, and Larry is sitting there screaming for days on end with a broken leg, and they don't have any money to get him to a doctor. When Harry Reid beat up his teacher's son and... To the day, to the day, you know, he died. You could see on his hand the, the knuckle bruise from that fight. Uh, his father told him, "Yeah, next time when you hit someone, you'll learn to keep your fist closed." He's somebody who the biggest Christmas gift he ever got every year was a five dollar uh, Christmas present from the owner, from one of the owners of a local brothel called the El Rey. Where he learned to swim. Where he learned to swim. This guy, Willie Martilla, who also, he says, Willie Martilla taught him to be honest. <laughs> there was a thing where Willie Martilla caught some kids stealing, I think, and gave them a whole lecture on. He, but that was the, and looking in like the Sears Roebuck catalog, and that was like his like fantasy as a kid. Like, oh my God, there's a real life. And I think he graduates from that school and now has to go to high school and has the determination at like 14, 15 to get on the road in the desert, which I, I challenge anybody, go drive that. Go get in, leave Vegas, drive to, drive to Searchlight today. And it is not, from Henderson to Vegas, it is 40 miles of nothing. And today when Vegas is developed out and Vegas is a lot smaller, you're in the desert, there are no lights, there are no, it's just desert for 40 miles. And he would hitchhike that to get to high school Hitchhike on Monday, hitchhike back on Friday home. He'd stay with relatives in Henderson. And like, and you know, his story is he meets this girl. He the last time I was in the Senate office with him, it was in the lame duck after he retired. He called and said, Can you come to the Senate office? And he wanted to give me a book, which is a book about physics. I have no idea why he wanted to seven rules of physics or something I feel like every book that was weird he was like let me give this to ari <laughs> <That's> <laughs> ari's weird let me give him the weird book he was like let like i want to give you this book and he gives me this book and then he's just talking and he was just remembering different things and he went into like 
this memory of like seeing Landra for the first time, like driving by her house. And he was like, there was this girl and oh, Ari, those shorts she was wearing. I was like, like I'm a bit uncomfortable here, <laughs> Senator. This is, but it like he, he saw this girl who was a, who by the way was a rich, well, not rich, but wealthier Jewish son of a prominent Don't chiropractor in the city. And that was, that became his entire devotion in life. Like from that literal moment in the driveway, he, he never stopped, but he, to envision the poverty that he grew up in. And the other important story, I mentioned this on Twitter, but he went to the dentist at one point when he was in high school and asked if they could give his mom new teeth. And the dentist was like, you got to pay. And he was so incensed that like nobody would help his poor mother. He went out and he got a job and he worked not only hitchhiking the high school, not only fighting, not only at that point boxing, not fight, also fighting with people on the street, but doing all that, hitchhiking back and forth, but saving up every penny so he could buy his mom teeth. And he said to me in the office that day, he's like, that was the proudest, that's the proudest moment of my life is when I could get my mom a new set of teeth. There was a video um, in 2016 when the convention was honoring him and um, Faz and others helped do interviews for it. And he interviewed Senator Reid for it. And I had never, I think, I think Senator Reid was mistaken as being, you know, he was kind of short in public or, you know, people like me, mean Harry was always like a meme on the right. I think he was extremely sentimental in uh, some of the pieces that Ari talked about, particularly obviously with his family and with Mrs. Reid. But I remember being in the room when he was being interviewed for that video and he told the buying his mom teeth story and he started to cry as like, if I do nothing else in life, I bought my mom teeth. And I, I feel like he, and maybe, you know, people later in life or ending their career, maybe get more sentimental and, and more reflective. But I, I think that you can have a direct line between where he grew up, what he saw as a system that maybe failed his parents and maybe failed hit some members of his family, like Larry yeah, or some of his friends and, and how he in his role was, was trying to take on that system as much as he could. And I don't think we sit here and say he was perfect, No, but I think that that was, that was a North star that guided him. And it was, yeah. um, I think, really, for me, my first experience working for a politician to have that be the conviction was, I'm, I'm so grateful to look back because I understand that that's not the norm, you know? But, and the, the viciousness of the system takes on a unique poignancy when it's afflicting your mother for whatever reason that is. People can understand that, I think, intuitively, but it is, it's, it's definitely the case. Yet, in the early part of his career, he was more of a traditional conser Western conservative New Deal-ish type of Democrat. And I want to talk about his, his transition throughout his life. You know, most people move left to right as they get older. He kind of went the opposite direction. And both of you were, were witness to that. Or you were there very early on um, when he decided to embrace the net roots, which he didn't really understand, but understood as a phenomenon 
you know, he needed to embrace. And the social security fight seems like the first time that that really- Which is a direct line right. to his mother because it was, my mother wouldn't have survived without social security. When my dad died, my mom would not have survived without social security. It kind of was his North Star. And how dare this rich, upper crust elitist from Yale named George W. Bush try to take away my, my mother's social security. And so 2004, George W. Bush is reelected. Yeah. Uh, he says, I've got political capital, I'm going to use it, and I'm going to privatize Social Security. In, in, in Washington, the pressure was just absolutely intense there on are, Democrats to have a Well, there are a few answer. layers here. So yeah. let's, let's kind of start, let's take a step back. We are coming off of the 2004 election where John Kerry lost. You are in a stage where Senate Democrats in particular are all about how can we placate Republicans and Bush since 9-11. Right. You have a city with no progressive infrastructure. And even infrastructure today that counts as more mainstream democratic and then was progressive, would have been progressive, was in its real infancy, like- Like Center for American Progress was barely- Just yeah, started yeah. and was pushing Democrats to the left on climate, by the way. Media Matters just was founded and MoveOn.org was just kind of a small anti-war organization with six staffers. There was no Huffington Post. Huffington Post was started, I think- Oh, five. Oh, five. Yeah. And when it started, it was literally a blog for Ariana's- Friends. Yeah. Celebrity friends. Yeah. And Daily Coast was, was just Marcos and like two or three other writers. It was a, ve it was a very small world of- online politics and they were that was the only world that was at all pushing back on this capitulation culture within the democratic party at that moment and the Kerry campaign ended and i got a call from susan to come in and interview for this war room that reed would be setting up and i was like do i really want to work for this conservative Democrat from Nevada. And the pitch from them was very, very clear. We're going to fight. We're not going to do this capitulation thing. We're actually going to fight George Bush. And the first big fight was Social Security. And Reid was just very, very clear, like other Democrats in the caucus. And you have to remember also, you look at the problems in the caucus today, it, he had a much more difficult caucus. He had only 45 votes. So he had five votes he could lose. And you had Mark Pryor, Blanche Lincoln, Mary Landrieu, Ben Nelson, Kent Conrad. There's five right there. And- You haven't started with Max Baucus and all the other- I haven't started cats. with Max Baucus. And then the king of them all, Joe Lieberman. <laughs> right. right. Who, who had just basically endorsed the other party. Right. And all of whom, if any one of them said- the White House's bet was they could get one of them to cut a deal. And if any one of them said they were going to support Social Security privatization, you would have lost 10 more votes. And Reid said, I'm going to hold, like Pelosi fought in the House, but frankly, she was in the minority and couldn't win right. in the House. Reid was the one who said, no deal. As I, I think I said it to, uh, I said it to Zach Carter. I said, he, Michael, he, 
he pulled the Michael Corleone. He said, my offer is nothing. And this war room that I have is going to sit here and fight on this every day. And it was every day we were putting out material, we were fighting on social security. He gave us leeway that other offices wouldn't do. And what I remember was there were a a bunch of bloggers who were like keeping a whip list. And with Reed's permission, we would, we would give them details about which senators were wavering behind the scenes, and they would start applying public pressure to those senators. And then those senators would freak out and call the office, and then they'd make a public pronouncement that they weren't wavering. And it was, but Reed understood first off that he had this outside group that would do a lot of his dirty work for him here. And then, so immediately he started to see, wow, these are other people who like a fight. Then he saw that, by the way, there were substantial financial resources. Move on that, that cycle, did like 30 million for Senate Democrats. It's a lot of money in those days. And it was more money, I would say it was more, because it was a small organization. They didn't have like an outsized 100-person staff and field program. This was like direct contribution, TV, like it was a very direct amount of money into Senate races. And he saw that, all these kind of right-wingers in D.C. who weren't doing anything to help with re-election but would talk a lot were saying, oh, these lefties are going to destroy the party. And then he saw that, wait, these guys are supporting Jim Webb and John Tester, mm-hmm. right? They're not, they're not saying you have to be like super lefty. They're like coming out there for Jim Webb and John Tester. Like they wanna, they're like me. They want to win. And I think that formed an alliance there. And I think once that alliance he was already feeling uncomfortable with the Iraq war. And I think there was this sense that he's, you know, he was already uncomfortable and he was moving on Iraq. And I think that's kind of the start of his transition more, you know, that, mm-hmm. that transition that you mentioned. Did, did you, Kristen, did you see, did you see it happening in real time? Or did you notice him becoming kind of more progressive over the time? Or did he just sense that more was possible and pushed harder? I think it's probably a combination of both. Because he did change some views. Yeah. Oh, certainly. I think it was more was possible. I think, too, I think you can never underestimate influences in people's people's lives. Yes, people are politicians. But when you have grandkids who are, not that Reed ever didn't take climate change seriously, but I I think that there, there is... To me, what it speaks to is he was someone who was willing to be pushed. I mean, Ari talked a little bit about that. Um, And he also was willing to be in front of people and hear from them. And in, in this instance, I'm speaking like from the progressive wing of the party. It's not as if he refused meetings and said, I don't want to hear you out on whatever issue you're coming in front of me on. Um, I don't pretend to be in his head. I also think, you know, you can go back in the like 12, 13, really 2013, 14. And I think a a lot was written particularly around, um, after Sandy Hook and the, um, background check vote, assault weapon ban vote in the magazine clip. But I believe those were the three votes in the Senate then. And before the vote, the assault weapon ban and magazine I, I don't remember the exact vote, but basically those were the two that people weren't sure where he was going to be on because he'd, he'd not been mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I think he was quite open about how times had changed then. I think he was resistant to talking about, oh, he's become you know, so much more progressive or oh, over time his views changed, even though obviously they did. But frankly, also the country's views changed. Right. Yep. So like, I, I think that it was his state changed. In many ways, he follows a little bit where his state went. And he helped shape it. Let's be clear. The creation, the we talked about 2010, the biggest component prior to the campaign of him winning in 2010 was him getting an early caucus in Nevada in 08 and building, creating a uh, registration advantage for the Democratic Party in Nevada yep. that didn't exist before, that created kind of a voter list for his campaign in 2010. That And he knew that 08 was going to be a wave election, so he took out some, pe- some Republicans. Uh, I believe Joe Heck yep. was a state senator. It was there was like that threshold point where it was like, okay, Obama's not just going to win Nevada. He's going to, it's going to. I mean, Obama won like twelve plus. It was like a landslide in Nevada. And when a wave happens, you're going to, you're going to take some people with you. Joe Heck tries to be moderate. Was probably going to run against Reed in ten. Would have probably been competitive. And Reed was like, let's we're we're playing in every race because some some. Are gonna co- we're going to be able to bring over the finish line because I think it will probably be a wave election. And he was right. And there were a couple people that lost um, who were potential competitors to him, uh, Republicans to him in, in 10. I want to go back to one thing Ari was saying. He mentioned this. He mentioned Susan around the war room. I think that one of the- Susan McHugh, Susan a longtime aide, who's the book is dedicated to, actually. I think yeah. that- Reed had such an eye for talent and for staff, and he knew how to empower them. He was so, he taught me so much. But one of the things that I feel like he taught me was how to be a leader of a team. Part of being a leader of a team is like you empower them and you understand that like you can't do every job and you need to like empower your team and trust them and like know like people are going to fuck up, people are going to make mistakes. But I trust you, Susan, to go out and find the best talent for the war room and that collectively, if we have a strategic vision and mission, like this is what we're going to do. Right. And the the other thing that makes Reed unique is in this era is that he built this machine in Nevada in, in, in a time when machines are out of fashion. And it wasn't that he took over one. He kind of built it. There wasn't there, from scratch. There wasn't right. one. And you have to remember. And machines come and yeah, the machines come with, to your point. What a lot of progressive, like good government types would just say, that's corrupt. That's over the line. Like the way that you're building power here is, is too much. But he seemed willing to say, no, we're going we're gonna to fight on every front that's available. It, well, and I think too, it, specific to Nevada, I mean, he was the one of the only successful Democrats in this. I mean, we're, uh, Governor and Senator uh, Bryan, but... He was, I think he was able to do that in the state because, I mean, he was the leader. He was the most prominent Democrat. Once he started gaining national notoriety when he won in 98 by 400 whatever votes, it was twofold. He understood if I'm going to win again, I need I need to like change the infrastructure here. I'm not going to be able to skate by. I think he, if he'd been losing... Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of people that was like, what are you doing mm-hmm. with this machine? But I, I think he was winning and like, again, I don't, you know, I think 
we would all agree not everything is perfect, et cetera, et cetera. But like, I think he had a way of bringing people in and bringing different parties. When I say parties, I just I yeah. don't mean it like factions of the party interests in. And I think he I think he under, understood that in his your terms machine building. <laughs> but it's also factions of the state in yeah. in the way where look culinary he had culinary and that relationship with D Taylor and what D built in Nevada. A and you also have to go back in his history. Talking about the union. The union, but you also have to go back in his history. Las Vegas itself is shaped by Reed's term as gaming commissioner. That you don't have you don't have the transition from the mafia to corporate Las Vegas without Harry Reed's term as gaming commissioner. So and Steve Wynn has said it to people that you don't have Steve Wynn doesn't build the mirage, doesn't No build, fan of Reed's really. No fan right. of Reed's, but basically it's like I don't exist without Reed cleaning the city up. Right. And kind of becoming an inviting place for large corporations to come in. And then you have as senator the we mentioned the city center project earlier, but you cannot underestimate what that meant for Right. And so this is in the wake of the financial crisis. So what happened about, was yeah, tell that's yeah. was city center was being built um one of the Midi sovereign wealth funds uh was the I think it was the UAE. I think it was the UAE sovereign wealth fund was the financier of the project they basically were like pulled out on MGM. They they were supposed to pay I think it was 35 million. They had like a 35 million dollar payment due and they were like nope, we're not going to pay. Sorry MGM. And MGM is building this what is a city center is just to be clear, it's the Aria, it's Vidara, it's the Walt now Waldorf Astoria, which what was it was the Mandarin before, but it's it's the complex that sits next to Bellagio, uh, sits next to Bellagio between kind of Bellagio and um, Mandalay. And it's a giant hotel and casino, and it was the biggest development project in Las Vegas at the time. We're talking ten thousand construction jobs. Vegas got hit after nine eleven hard. And then the, obviously the financial crisis hits Vegas because people aren't, not only are people not going on vacation and spending money, but also you had all this, you know, Wall Street cash kind of financing Vegas. And the foreclosure that, crisis. Then you have a foreclosure crisis that hits the, hits the outside of Las Vegas really hard because Vegas was one of the key places of people getting liars loans and all that stuff, which I'm sure Ryan has talked about on some podcast. Mm -hmm. And- Reed, basically, when UA pulled out MGM, not only was this project going to die, but the entire MGM corporation could have been taken down by it, which wouldn't have only meant these construction jobs, but M like MGM Grand, Ball like you go down the strip. Union jobs, culinary jobs. Yeah. And not only- The economy of Las Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> you're talking half the casinos in Las Vegas going bankrupt at once. And Reed- comes in and basically calls up banks and is like, you're going to come in here and I don't care. Like, you're going to save this project. And, you know, you could say that's not appropriate for a senator to do. And once again, Reed would say, I don't care. I got to save these jobs. MGM is critical to my state. Sorry. Right. Ari, Kristen, Faz, thanks so much for joining me. So after we turned the mics off, Ari asked if he could tell one more story about Reed. I thought it was worth including, so here's that one. So after, after his time in Utah, Reed comes back 
to. So he, well, after his time in DC. So he goes to Utah right. for law school. He goes to DC. There's kind of an amazing story. He Where a Nevada congressman tells him it was a good thing that uh, Kennedy got shot uh, because he was bringing the country towards communism. Right. There was yeah. that. There was the- when, That's when he was a Capitol Police officer. There was when he flew to- He took the bar exam before he graduated from law school, which is ridiculously rare. Yes. He said he, he, he had to lobby a commission to go early and knew that it was graded on a curve, looked at the list of 50 people who were scheduled to take it. He was like, I'm smarter than- Because remember, Nevada's more a than tiny- half of those Nevada's people. like a tiny state at that point, like really tiny. So you knew- he knew the people on the he list. He knew everybody yeah. on the list. The other thing was, so he flies back to Las Vegas and the fee was like $50. And Mike Callahan, O'Callahan met him at the, the guy who became governor, his high school boxing, met him at the airport and handed him a $50 bill. And he had never, because that was the fee for the bar exam. Mm -hmm. And he had never seen a $50 bill before. That was the most yeah. money he had ever like held in his right. hand. At one at mm -hmm. that point, and he takes the bar. He goes back. He graduates. He comes back to Nevada. He s starts in private practice. Becomes county attorney. Is running for different offices, but builds up a pretty prominent litigation practice. Or becomes a state legislator. Becomes a state, and you you had full time jobs when you were doing right. these things. But becomes a pretty active litigator. I think he tried like fifty cases in court, which. Now somebody would do across like an entire career in law, but he did it in a few years. And a few of those cases are just, they say a lot about Reed and they're obscenely interesting. I love the Russell Payne story. That, that's an amazing one. And you researched this one. Yeah, that, book, he talked right? about it in the book and we yeah. researched it. And it was, it's one of those stories I talked about before where you hear a story from him and then you hear it from others and you're like, what the, like, dear God. So- he, there's a kid named Russell Payne, son of prominent, a prominent doctor. They have a vacation home in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And Russell's up there with his parents and his parents disappear. And Russell's kind of covered in blood, but they can't find the bodies. Russell's actually friends with Gary Bates, who I've mentioned in this interview. Right. Uh, Gary calls Reed, is like, you need to get up who, here. Who's the mob linked, like, bodyguard for... Right. Like, you need to get up here. You need to help this guy out. Reed flies up. With it, a revolver, he says. It's very clear that the sheriff really wants to pin it on Russell Payne. Not because he's obviously guilty, which he kind of is obviously. Something happened to the parents. It's pretty obvious Russell Payne was responsible. But the sheriff is very, like, clearly anti-Semitic. And that Reed was always somebody who... I think partially because of Landra, partially because of Michael Callahan, who like was a Korean war vet who went to fight in Israel at one point. Right. Yes. Had he, one leg and like went to it was always very uh, astutely observant of anti-Semitism and always really it always something struck Reed really harshly. Well, by the way, by the fact pattern, the kid was clearly guilty of something, though they didn't have bodies yet. And that the the city was going to press forward because of this anti-Semitism angle. So Reed flies up, meets Gary, meets Russell, and decides they have to get him out of the state. While they're doing this, they find the parents' bodies. And Reed and Gary concoct this like ridiculous plan that, by the way, you can read about in Reed's book. It's the most interesting chapter to me. 
if you want to just do some interesting reading, download Reed's book, The Good Fight. Skip the Senate chapters. Read, this is chapter six, I believe. It's the cases nobody would take. Mm -hmm. It's just an, you want to like, this should, the Russell the King case good. should yes. be a movie. So they fly up and Reed and Gary concoct this like vacocta plan where like they split up and they hide Russell in a car and I, I might be getting this wrong. Reed like drives west and Gary drives south and the sheriff pulls over Gary to arrest Russell, but Gary's in Reed's car. And the, I actually just read it recently again, uh, and it is a great it is a great chapter. They Reed assumed that the police would expect the kid to be with him, who was twenty five years old, but he calls him a kid, kid to be with him. So Reed goes to the airport and buys like two tickets. Right. Uh, and then went and but then sends uh, sends the pain with somebody else to drive out of Wyoming into Idaho rather than fly from Wyoming down to Vegas. And when he gets to the airport, the he's right. The police are there. And they're like, Mr. Reed, you know, where's, where's Russell Payne? Like, I don't know. So like, I don't know where Russell Payne is. So he drives to Idaho and then took a private plane right. from Idaho down to Las Vegas. And then they, then there was a long extradition so fight. So what Reed did was they right. got to Las Vegas and Reed immediately has Russell surrender to the Las Vegas PD where, look, Las Vegas is like this tiny town. Everybody knows Reed. Everybody knows, like, and so Reed is able to fight extradition for years. And there's this scene where the other great scene was, and the way Reed describes it is so funny. It's like vintage Harry Reed, where the guy calls in this famous litigator of the day, this famous defense lawyer, I forget the name at this moment. And the guy comes in and what Reed remembers about the defense lawyer and what he always, he, he was in the book, but he also would always comment it and get this like smile on his face, was the guy had like a garter belt for his socks. Yes. And wasn't wearing pants when Reed came into yeah, the came hotel in the room. room. The guy's wearing boxers and like a garter belt holding up his socks. And Reed thinks this is like the funniest thing. Like decades later, he's still like, Ari, the guy was wearing a garter belt on his, so who does that? And Russell ended up not using the well, attorney because he asked the, he asked he had, the attorney, yeah, how much would you, how much would you take? And the attorney said, everything you got. Right. That's my fee. Everything you, that, that was his standard fee for these types of trials. It's like Every, everything. Everything you have. Like, how bad do you want to not spend the rest of your life in And prison? the guy's like, well, I'll go with Reed. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the discount. Yes. And Reed ends up fighting this based on, the kid was on a drug, a prescribed medication. Mm-hmm. That apparently that his, dad or, that his dad had prescribed. That his dad had prescribed that was supposed to make you smarter, but apparently just made you crazy. And it caused a mental breakdown and the kid killed his parents. And basically for a double homicide, he was they got it down to a manslaughter, essentially like manslaughter because of medical mm -hmm. issues. But it was one of the first cases ever in the country where a murder charge was reduced, a double murder was reduced down to this. And Reed fought it because he saw, as soon as he saw an injustice, even in an insane situation, he felt the need to fight that injustice. Right. And ended up, uh, Russell did, I think, six years in prison and then went on to live his life in Las Vegas. Yeah. And he also uh, represented a woman who had, was accused of bouncing a couple checks there was the that, bounce and the, well, the big one, the one that always sticks with me is the, a prostitute came in about her storage unit. 
items being stolen. Right. That, yeah. Right. And he- She'd been evicted. She'd been evicted. Without going through the proper process. And his law partners were, why are you taking this case? It's not the Russell Payne case where the guy's got unlimited amounts of money to, this is no profit. This woman's not going to win. But Reed saw an injustice and saw these storage companies bullying this woman. And a lot of like consumer protections are, became based on this case because this woman won. And it basically said you can't abuse people just because they're, uh, you know, this is years ahead. And, and the thing that's interesting is it's not like Reed was pro-sex work. In fact, I think he was... He's pretty anti-sex work to the end. He was, he thought Nevada should reverse its prostitution laws as late as like 2018 or 2019. He thought it was bad for the state mm -hmm. that Nevada had legal prostitution in certain counties. But he saw an injustice against the individual. Well, Ari Ravenhoff, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Mr. Grimm. That was Ari Ravenhoff. Earlier, we also spoke with Krista Northman and Faz Shakir. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our podcast fellow is Troop Wynn. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review each time. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.